0: Hebrews 20.20, We See Jesus is the name of the series. Hopefully you know that by now because this is increment 125. So this is the 125th time I've introduced it as such. And the title of this message in the Greek text, as well as the last one, 124, will be, Even as it says, in another place kathos kai en hetero lege, and that's a passage in Hebrews. And so we'll begin, as always, with a word of prayer, and we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, finally, as we're only beginning to fight with this message. Father, we thank you today that every time we approach your word, It's with the expectation of receiving enlightenment and encouragement through the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. So we approach the scripture of truth today, depending upon the spirit of truth, to reveal the one who is the truth, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let him manifest him in such a way through the teaching today that we indeed do see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, And we ask this in his name, amen. Hebrews is a brilliant and well-developed argument that not only does this community of confessors of Jesus as Son of God have a great archpriest, but it proposes that they have a superior great archpriest and superior benefits that accrue from his service of God on their behalf. One can imagine this PT, and I can imagine it very well, I can imagine him praying about the adversity that he knows this community is enduring. And in connection with our last increment, you might recall, he was also thinking of the accusation that had been leveled at them. The Holy Spirit must have whispered to this concerned pastor, they've been accused of not having an archpriest. They do have an archpriest. It's Jesus. He is the priest for the age like Melchizedek. Tell them that. Now again, this is very vital and we're Doing two things as we go through Hebrews, and really, I have two goals. One is to distill it, its meaning. Two is to apply it on the level of our own time. No other document in the New Testament, and there are twenty-seven of them, overtly identifies Jesus as the great archpriest, like Melchizedek, especially. No other document in the New Testament approaches the subject of Jesus as great archpriest like Melchizedek. Not one of them. So this must have been an insight that arose in a special exigency or a special crisis or emergency. Other books of the New Testament, in fact, many allude to Psalm 2-7 which we have in Hebrews 5.5 and also Hebrews 1.5 and also Psalm 110.1, which is a passage, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for my feet. Psalm 2 is 7, also doing with the sonship of Jesus Christ. You are my son today. I have begotten you, which refers to his accession to the royal throne as king. We have then... Copious references to Psalm one ten one throughout the whole New Testament, either allusions or direct quotations of it, including Hebrews. Hebrews one thirteen and 10.13. And these passages, Psalm 2.7 and 1.10.1, in connection with Jesus, the Son of God, are therefore plenteous. Only Hebrews speaks of Jesus in connection with, with Psalm 110.4. And in comparison with the enigmatic personage called Melchizedek, who only appears for a few short verses in Genesis 14.18-20, and then again pops up in Psalm 110.4. And so only Hebrew speaks of Jesus in connection with Psalm 110.4, and in comparison with that enigmatic person named Melchizedek, whose name means Melchi, king, that means king, Malki plus Zedek means righteousness, king of righteousness. He's compared to Melchizedek. And that's going to bring us to the central part of Hebrews. The central part of Hebrews begins with, really, chapter 7 and verse 1. And in one it goes all the way through to 10.18. This is the center of the Hebrews' argument. And this is a concentric circle. It's a circle within a circle within a circle. That's how that's structured, that central section. And in the center of the center of the center is Jesus Christ and him crucified as our great archpriest, as we're going to find out. What a wonderful document this is. And to think they actually fought against canonizing this doctrine for a couple of centuries, and this, this epistle, rather, called Hebrews. They did the same thing for Revelation. There were people who didn't think it belonged in the canon of the Scripture. Obviously, they didn't see the centrality of Jesus Christ in his death. In fact, both Hebrews and Revelation deal, along with the whole New Testament at large, deals with the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and his universally saving impact of his death on the cross and his resurrection, of course, ascension, and exaltation at the right hand of the Father. And so Psalm 110.4 is brought into the discussion right here in five six, as we're going to see. So powerful was this insight. So fruitful also was this discovery that the PT fans it out through this whole homily. He introduces it extremely subtly and carefully. And then in 5.11, you're going to notice that he kind of stops or halts, although it's not really a stoppage. He's doing something else. From 5.11 all the way through 6.20, he kind of uses a whole interval to prepare them for that insight. So crucial, so important is that insight that this all makes sure they're prepared to receive it and that they've gone through various conver- conversions in their soul and spirit to be able to receive it. So powerful then was this insight of the great arch priesthood of Jesus Christ. So fruitful was it that it's fanned out throughout this whole homily. So vital was this insight that the consequences of not receiving it were dire consequences. So significant was this insight that it occasioned the writing of a document that would become part of the canon of authorized scripture, even though there was substantial opposition to its canonicity for some time. In fact, Hebrews is so important that the New Testament would have been flawed without it. It would have been incomplete without that revelation of Jesus Christ as the great archpriest. The more and more I go into this study, the more and more I understand why the Holy Spirit selected it for Tetelestai Phalanx and for anyone else who wants to listen to this teaching and watch it online or otherwise. And so again... Intimations of Jesus, Archpriest, are made in Hebrews one three, where it says he made purification for sins. Hebrews two seventeen to three one, it becomes a little more clear. Then Hebrews four fourteen to sixteen, and then this leads to Hebrews five, which is a comparison and contrast of Jesus with Aaron, Moses' brother, and the first Archpriest of the Levitical order. And so, the comparison and contrast of Jesus with Aaron begins with the aim being to show the infinitely superior advantages of having Jesus as such a great archpriest. Now, you can see how this works. They're willing they're starting to be a little faltering on their confession of Jesus as the Son of God. So the whole point of this writer is, yes, he's the Son. There's no angel that was ever called Son. None of the angels were said to sit at my right hand as Jesus was. He has a name above the angels. He has a name and an importance and an honor above Moses. He has an honor above Aaron is the next step in this this show of the superiority of Jesus Christ. We see Jesus superior as a great archpriest. So once they understand this insight, what it does is fortifies their confession of Jesus as the Son of God and fortifies them against returning to an abrogated or disannulled system of temple sacrifices, and eventually that would even lead to destruction If they were there for the feast in A.D. 66 where the Roman armies came as the abomination of desolation, surrounded the city and starved it and then besieged it and then attacked it, then sacked it, then burned the temple. This PT didn't want them there when that happened. So one can imagine the whole scenario here. So intimations are made first, then... Hebrews five one. i I've translated it this way so far. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. And so this archpriest has a horizontal ministry and a vertical orientation. He acts on behalf of human beings is the horizontal orientation. He, do, he acts on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God is the vertical orientation of the great archpriest. And therefore, the cross is accentuated here because it goes on to say to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. The main thing that the archpriest does that pertains to God and that's on behalf of the people is he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins these gifts and sacrifices for sins which are animal sacrifices grain sacrifices meal sacrifices young bulls heifers lambs rams pigeons even sometimes for the poor people. All of these are a type of the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that took the sin of the whole world out and that offered forgiveness forever for all humankind for all time. And so this is what's this whole thing is directed toward. Every archpriest selected from human beings. He had to become a human being in the sense that he had to take on flesh, become like his brothers and sisters, in order to be selected from among human beings as an archpriest. Because every archpriest, whether Aaron or Jesus even, Selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. And then verse 2 says, And who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. Jesus certainly experienced weakness in many ways, but his weakness never led him to sin like every other archpriest who then had to offer a sacrifice for himself as well as for the people. Jesus didn't need to do that. Verse 3, and because of this weakness, and I put it here in brackets because it's true to sense, because of this weakness, which sometimes lead to sin, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself. We're talking now about every archpriest not the unique messianic archpriest, Jesus Christ. This is a comparison and a contrast. The next point is very important, and it goes to Hebrews 2.9, which is our title verse for our whole series. Hebrews 2.9 is extracted from Psalm 8, 4 through 6, or the Septuagint Psalm 8, 5 through 7. It has to do with the honor of, and the word honor, I'll write it right across the cross, is T-I-M-E. Time, honor is found both in Hebrews 2.9, we see him glory, or crowned with glory and honor. He who was crowned with thorns, the thorns and thistles of Adam's curse, is now crowned with glory, which is the glory of a king, and honor which is the honor of the priesthood. The reason we know that it's the honor of the priesthood is because of verse 4. It says no one takes this honor, the honor of the archpriest, on himself, but is called by God, just as Aaron was. So Jesus' superiority has been demonstrated over the angels, as we saw in the first couple chapters of Hebrews, over Moses, as we saw in the third chapter, the first part of the third chapter of Hebrews. Now it's the aim of the PT to exhibit the superiority of Jesus over Aaron, who is the exemplar of the very prestigious Levitical priesthood. The writer then, the PT, the teaching pastor, will deploy the rhetorical strategy with Aaron and with the comparison and contrast of Aaron with Jesus as he did with Moses and Jesus. The strategy is called auxasis. And it means a comparison that doesn't say Aaron is bad and Jesus is good, but a comparison that says Aaron is great, but Jesus is greater. Did the same thing with Moses. Didn't take Moses down. He simply said, Moses is great, Jesus is greater. The angels, some of which are principal angels, archangels, they are great, but Jesus is greater. That's auxasis. It's a rhetorical strategy that was made famous by Aristotle and Quintilian and other people that were skilled in rhetoric. So was this pastor. This pastor was a highly educated man, and he was possibly speaking to an audience that was also fairly cognizant of a lot of these things like rhetoric. And so no one takes this honor on himself, but is called by God just as Aaron was. So Jesus' superiority has been demonstrated over the angels, over Moses. Now it's the aim of the PT to exhibit Jesus' superiority over Aaron, who is the exemplar of the Levitical priesthood. He's going to deploy this strategy called auxasis, he will also deploy the law of similarity and dissimilarity to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus over Aaron and the superior prestige or honor, Time of the archpriesthood of Jesus even over that of Aaron. And therefore, the sacrifice that Jesus offers is superior over the sacrifices offered by Aaron and by all the high priests of his order. So later in the central concentric ses- section of Hebrews, that's 7.1 to 10.18, the PT, the preaching teacher, will highlight the significance of Jesus' likeness to a figure and a personage named Melchizedek, as we've seen. And even more importantly, He will show the infinite superiority of the offering offered by Jesus, the priest, for the age. He's called the priest for the age, like Melchizedek. That did not mean that Melchizedek is a priest for the age, but it meant that Jesus was like Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness and priest, and king of Salem or Jerusalem. But Jesus is priest for the age, and I'll explain what that means. The development of this insight into a doctrine and into a basis for exhortation actually becomes the necessary incentive to push this community that he wrote to forward to a state of completion. And by that I mean they become, in by complete I mean they become a coherent prolepsis or Anticipation of the solidarity of Jesus with all of humanity. So Hebrews 5, 5, and I'm really taking the barest outline of this as we did with Zechariah 3:1 to 9 last time. Hebrews 5, 5, my translation so far with a little bit of commentary. Similarly. Note this word, similarly, as it starts off verse 5. I've talked about the law of of comparison and contrast. I've talked about the law of similarity and dissimilarity. And that's what he uses to compare and contrast Jesus as archpriest with Aaron as archpriest. And Jesus comes out far greater, of course. So he begins this whole thing with the word similarly. And it's a very very rare use of a an adverb that looks like this. And I'm only doing this to show you how this illustrates the law of similarity and dissimilarity. Utos or hutos, and sometimes with an S and sometimes not with an s. H u, h o u t, o, s and sometimes not an S. It simply means similarly. So we already have there the law of similarity. Similarly, the Messiah did not glorify himself or promote himself. Again, this word glorify also refers back to Hebrews two nine. He did not glorify or promote himself to be archpriest. On the contrary, and here's where the argument hits a pivot that creates a tremendous forward momentum, not only for the establishment of this congregation, but for the defeat of the accuser. So he says, on the contrary, the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that same one said, you are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek. So because the confession to which these readers must hold fast is that of Jesus the Son of God, or Jesus as the Son of God, the teaching pastor reemphasizes the original passage that he quoted from Psalms. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He originally cited that all the way back in five to show the unique sonship of Jesus. His aim now is to link the terms Son, capital S-O-N, and Archpriest to show that this same Jesus, who is the Son of God according to their confession, and ours for that matter, is also the great Archpriest. And not only that, this is verifiable by the Scripture just as his sonship is verifiable throughout the scripture. Hebrews 5 5 then begins with that adverb, uto or hutos, an adverb that refers to that which preceded it, that is, Aaron. It means in the same way. As such, it's part of a comparison. It can even be translated as similarly here, as I will do it and I, as I have. And so here the law of similarity is clearly in evidence. The idea here is, similarly to Aaron, who didn't promote himself, the Messiah didn't promote himself. Similarly to Aaron, he was selected from among men. Similarly to Aaron, he did not put, take this glory onto himself. But the one who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. That is, sit at a royal throne, said you are a priest forever, and therefore have a priestly honor forever. So in the same way that Aaron didn't exalt or promote himself to the honor of being an archpriest, the Messiah, Jesus, did not promote or exalt himself to that position, a position that holds Great honor. Now, this may be, if we're going to get back to the invisible cause of this or occasion of this writing, there may be a direct hit here on the invisible accuser. Because, in contrast to both Aaron and the Messiah, namely Jesus, in contrast to them, the accuser, also known as the adversary, did exalt himself. And as a result, will be brought low and dishonored. In fact, there's a little bit of proof anyways in the scripture that Satan himself aspired to the office of great archpriest. Tried to take that honor to himself. The adversary then did exalt himself. You see that, for example, in... Isaiah 14, 12-14, Ezekiel 28, 13-18, etc. He did exalt himself and as a result will be brought low and dishonored just like all of his accusations against the brothers and sisters of Messiah will also turn to ashes. So here in Hebrews 5b through verse 6 is the sudden pivotal and surprising turn of the entire homily. This is where the pivot is that turn, um, upon which the whole homily turns. It's powerful. It says again, 5B, the one who said to him, that's the Messiah, Jesus, you are my son, and that's a royal declaration, incidentally. Today I have begotten you, Psalm 2-7 quoted in Hebrews 1-5, also said in another place. That's the title of today's message. Kathos kai and hetero lege. <clears throat> also said in another place, meaning in Scripture. The same God, <clears throat> the same one, capital O-N-E, said in another place, meaning in Scripture, and that's one Psalm 110.4 or 109.4 in the Septuagint, you are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek, you are my son, <clears throat> what's our confession? Jesus, the Son of God, what's the accusation? You don't have an archpriest, wrong. Jesus the Son, is our archpriest. Jesus, you are my God says you are my son in another place, he says, you are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek. Hey guys. You have a priest, all right, you have an archpriest, all right, and he's better and more superior to the great archpriest Aaron and all his descendants, all the way down through Caiaphas, who tore his priestly robes when Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah. So like Melchizedek, just like Melchizedek, like Melchizedek is how that should be translated as we're going to find out down the road a little more clearly. So it's like Melchizedek in this case, not like Aaron. Here, similarity is matched and balanced by the dissimilarity and then of similarity again. Like Aaron, not like Aaron, like Melchizedek. This time, the similarity is And dissimilarity is with Melchizedek. In the first instance, where Jesus is shown to be the son begotten by the father, Jesus is identified as king. For that's the very formula that kings used when their sons ascended to the throne after them or took the throne as a co-regent with them. You are my son, today I have begotten you, is the words that the king says to his son when his son is declared king king and so what was Melchizedek king Melchizedek king of righteousness king of Salem which is a shortened term for Jerusalem he is king of the holy city and he's king of righteousness so Jesus is like him in that sense he's a king and a priest so just like Melchizedek note the similarity We'll later see in Hebrews, especially chapter 7, that this Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. This priest, Melchizedek, that met Abraham after his defeat of the kings of the, that, of the terrorist groups and the terrorist bands in the Valley of the Kings, this same king, this same Melchizedek is a king as well as a priest. He was also the king of Salem, which means peace. So Jesus is like Melchizedek, both as a king and a priest. Aaron was not a king. Aaron was a priest. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Jesus is a king and a priest like Melchizedek. But unlike Melchizedek, Jesus is for the age, throughout the age. And that age is an endless age in the future world without end. So, Jesus is even king, not in the earthly, but in the heavenly new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. This insight, therefore, is so important to the initial addressees or recipients of Hebrews that if they grasped it, it would be almost impossible for them to return to a system which required them to resort to the archpriest of the Jerusalem of this age, that which Paul called the Jerusalem that is now. And it would be almost impossible, given that insight of his once and for all and forever sacrifice, to return to the inefficacious offerings for sins offered in the stone temple. So to fully present this insight, it will have to be thoroughly developed. And such an insight, here's another principle, and it applies to you and me. Such an insight requires development, but so do the hearers. As we hear insight and see them develop, we must also develop along with that insight. And therefore, we have The theological functional specialty called foundations. Foundations refers to conversions in the hearers. Conversions that have to happen in us. They're called intellectual conversion, moral conversion, spiritual conversion, and psychic conversions. All these things have to happen in the hearers as we develop, as the insights develop that we receive. So let us go on to completion let us go on to full development, is what Hebrews 6.1 says. So I'm just throwing out a bunch of stuff now that we're going to also follow up and clarify and codify and document and really turn into a doctrine ultimately. Any insight is developed by asking the question. Once we have an insight, Jesus is our archpriest. We ask, is that really so? The writer has put forth this insight, and now he's going to show that it's really so in one through 10.18. So after making a judgment that it is really so, that Jesus really is a priest for the age like Melchizedek, these readers will also have to deliberate and decide what to do and indeed what to be on the basis of that judgment. If Jesus is your great archpriest, what are you going to do? Go back to the temple sacrifices? Hell no, of course not. If Jesus is really the great archpriest whose sacrifice was once and for all and forever for all the sins of all mankind for all time, are you going to go back to offer sacrifices in the temple that could never take away sins and can't even take away the consciousness of sin? Of course not. You see, that's the value of an insight that's developed by reflection into a judgment, and a judgment that occasions deliberation, and deliberation that results in decision. Remember, we went all through that in Hebrews 4.12, the distinction of the soul and the spirit by the word of God. So, these readers will deliberate on that judgment, and they'll have to decide what to do and indeed what to be on the basis of that judgment. What are you going to be now? that you know that Jesus is a great archpriest over the household of God. Are you going to be a priest yourself in that household? Are you going to approach the throne of grace for yourself and others? Are you going to be an autonomous individual who goes to the throne of grace for yourself when you're suffering certain things and undergoing certain things? And are you going to go there for your friends, for your loved ones as a priest? Is that what you're going to be? And the answer to that, I think, should be yes on their part and on our part. The hope of the PT, this teaching pastor, who wrote Hebrews, is that they will choose to hold fast fast to the confession of Jesus as the Son of God, and they will resort exclusively to him as their great archpriest. And therefore, they will not return to the temple sacrifices, and by doing so, compromise their confession, and greatly weaken the Christian community at large. This is at a very pivotal point where the Christian community was being separated from the temple community. And it was, if they didn't do that, we, we might not even have that which we call Christianity today. Even though Christendom has its faults and its flaws, there's definitely a distinction of the followers of Jesus Christ, and it's called Christians today. It's a Christian community, and it's a prolepsis of a universal salvation. So the idea here is that Hebrews will have done its job in dispelling any mental and spiritual duress in the readers that would come about by what is psychologically known as cognitive dissonance. That's when you hold two mutually exclusive attitudes about something. Holding fast their confession of Jesus, for example, and going back to the temple sacrifices. You can't hold both those attitudes, a good attitude toward the temple sacrifices and a good attitude toward Jesus, the Son of God. You can't hold both of those without having some kind of cognitive dissonance that has to be Cured by going one way or another. Jesus said it this way. You can't serve God and mammon. You've got to serve one and forsake the other. They're going to have to stay with Jesus as the Son of God and forsake the temple sacrifices or go back to the temple sacrifices and endure the consequences. And the writer is basically saying, that's just not doable. That's just not... It's not even really possible if you understand Jesus as your great archpriest. So... Hebrews will have done its job if these believers truly receive this insight. Armed with the unprecedented and unparalleled insight of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, also being their great archpriest and his definitive and final offering and sacrifice for sins on the cross being the definitive and final sacrifice for sins, they're far less likely to even consider hiding the light of their confession under a bushel basket or, in this time of year, under an Easter Easter basket, for that matter, in order to associate again with a system and a society who rejected Jesus, the Son of God. Not worth it. So the preaching pastor, in closing, never gets too far away from the sufferings that Jesus endured because his audience is enduring some suffering. He never gets too far away from the sufferings that Jesus endured as he experienced the doleful condition of human beings in every way, and especially his endurance for all human beings of the absolute death that is the wages of sin. So here's a hint at what's coming in Hebrews 5.7. Here is a very crucial, at this crucial pivot of the homily, that truth is demonstrated again. He never gets far from the sufferings that Jesus endured in his earthly life culminating with the cross. Notice verse 7, in the days of his flesh, that is during his earthly life, he offered, that's a priestly term incidentally, offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications. If in his earthly life he was already offering prayers and supplications as offerings to God, as it were, was he already the great archpriest? The the great archpriest had to have something to offer. What did he finally offer? Himself. When he offered himself, was he offering as a priest or did he not become a priest till after he rose and ascended? That's a good question. He offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience. Someone will say, well, he prayed that the cup would pass from him, that he wouldn't endure the death of the cross, and he wasn't heard because he endured the death of the cross. No, this refers to being saved out from the realm of the dead after tasting or experiencing death for all of humankind. For Hebrews 13.20 is where the answer is found. The God of peace brought up Jesus our Lord, the great shepherd of the sheep, from the dead, from the realm of death because he had respect for the blood of the covenant, the blood that ratified the new covenant. So this is hints to come. Here's some more hints and we'll close. This shows, one, Jesus' weakness. Two, it shows his sinlessness. Three, it shows his priestly action in the offering of prayers and supplication. This is not only for himself, but for others. He also had a great outcry when he asked God to bring Lazarus out from the dead. And Jesus said, I know that you always hear me, Father, but for their sake, I'm going to pray this really out loud. Come forth, Lazarus. That's told in John eleven thirty-five to 44. And then Hebrews 13, 20, again, where the God of peace is declared to have brought up from the dead, Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord. So here's a question that will lead us into our next increments. Does Hebrews 7 or Hebrews 5, 7, have a specific reference to Jesus' supplications in Gethsemane or even in Golgotha. Scholars say yes, others say no. In Psalm 22, I see Jesus crying out to the Father from Golgotha, from the cross, Save your darling, save me from the lion's mouth. He couldn't save himself, according to Psalm 22, so God had to save him. But I think there's a third way to view this, that his strong outcries and prayers and petitions and supplications to the one who was able to save him from death refers both to his general life on earth and to specific petitions to his father for himself to be delivered from death. And even that, wasn't for himself. Because when Jesus was delivered from death, he would also be delivering all of humankind in him and all of creation from its slavery to corruption and eventual death. So when Jesus prayed to the Father to deliver him from death, he was assuming all of creation with himself and all of humanity with himself. So he was praying that in his deliverance from the realm of death all humanity would also be delivered from that realm of death and all creation would be delivered from entropy which is a slavery to corruption that would lead to literally the death of the universe all that would be a death into life through jesus christ our lord and we thank you father for yet another opportunity and you keep multiplying these opportunities May we, as we develop this insight in Hebrews, may we develop with the insight so that we may become complete as a coherent community of believers, and as a community of believers in our own time, be effective agents of your grace and of your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.